Father God, thank you for the honor of speaking to your people. God, don't take it lightly. God, as we sang in the song, you are worthy of all of our worship, our praise. Jesus, you alone are worthy for all that you've done for us, God. We want to make sure, God, that you are glorified in every moment of our service tonight. God, that you are exalted. Jesus, you are magnified. God, in the preaching of your word, Jesus, be magnified. Jesus, be exalted. God, would you prepare our hearts beforehand to be good soil for your word to implant in and grow and bear a harvest of faith, a harvest of righteousness in each of us as you shape and mold us to be the men and women of God you desire for us to be. Holy Spirit, help me to communicate your word faithfully and speak only what you want spoken and nothing else. God, we love you. God, we trust you. Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm so excited to see each and every one of you guys. Thank you for braving the, what is it, tornado watch? Did they cancel that? What, just crazy thunderstorms. Um, y'all are the best, right? Just still, still show up and say, hey, I want Jesus, even if it's a little rainy, even if it means I'm going to get a little wet. I'm going to get some use out of my raincoat or my uh, umbrella. Love, love that you guys are here. During the breakout group time, we talked a little bit about revival, right? We talked about maybe you've seen on your social media or on the internet or on news reports uh, on various college campuses across the country, there have been special moves of God, right? Special moves of God, uh, revivals sometimes they're called. I mean, most notably in Asbury, Kentucky, right, where, where as many as 10,000 people from, from all over the country are coming to this small college campus because, man, they're having a spectacular move of God there. What started is just a regular Wednesday chapel service. They're a Christian college. They got chapel. Y'all don't have to go to chapel. Uh, but they, the regular Wednesday chapel service, uh, and there was just a really sweet, special move of the Holy Spirit. And so students, even when chapel service were over, lingered, or they went to class, and they came back. It's like, man, God's really doing something special. And then that Wednesday chapel service went on for two days, went on for three days, went on for a week, went on for two weeks. It just kind of kept going as people were hungry for God. And then the news got out, and people started coming over, uh, coming from all over to come and, come and experience, what God, what are you doing here at Asbury? But it's not just there in Kentucky. Man, there's reports out of Ohio, out of Texas, right, all across the country. And you guys have seen some of that on your social media, right? Like, man, what, what is God doing? Uh, and in our breakout groups, we dreamed a little bit about what could that look like here in Memphis, right? Um, and we, we need the Lord too, right? Your campus, the University of Memphis, desperately needs a move of God as well. What's that going to look like here? It might look different, right? First of all, we don't have chapel services, right? It's going to look different. Uh, but, but still, we, we desperately need the Lord. Uh, and, and we desperately want to see hearts turn towards him, Jesus glorified, and people coming to know him. Amen. And so we're going to talk tonight a little bit about that, about God's perspective on this idea of revival, on this idea of an outpouring of his Holy Spirit on the body, on us corporately, and what, what that looks like and how he would have us think about that. The word revival, the way we're using it in this context, like a noun, uh, the word revival is kind of like the word trinity, right? That exact word does not appear in your Bible anywhere used in that way. So, so this is not a word that we find in the Bible, but it's a helpful theological concept to help us to understand you know, when we see these special moves of God, when we see uh, both in the scriptures and in church history where there's a dramatic move of God that revitalizes the church. So we will see the word revive as a verb in your Bible. We'll see the psalmist cry out, God, revive my heart. Man, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see uh, God make these kind of moves and do these things um, and, and throughout, throughout the scriptures and throughout church history. But that word revival, 
right? And you may have heard that if you grew up in church. Uh, we're not going to necessarily find that exact word in the church. Here, here, this is what a, or in the Bible. This is a revival. This is what a revival should look like. Some of you guys grew up in church where they scheduled revival, right? You know, this week we're having a revival. That means you're going to church every night, right? <laughs> or every day. That's what it's going to look like. Uh, and, and it's something you scheduled on the calendar. And I, I'm not putting that down or belittling that. That was my upbringing too, right? That's my culture too. Uh, we would do that. And it'd be special times uh, with God. But I feel like we're talking about something different, right? We're talking about a sovereign outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. God, God at work uh, in a way that, that, that is unique and special. And so when we're talking about revival, it's going to be in that context, right? A sovereign move of God, a dramatic move of God that revitalizes the church. The word revival simply means to awaken or literally to bring back to life, revive, right? If you've got, uh, if you've got someone that has uh, in the hospital, right? And they need to be revived, right? They, 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 they've lost a pulse and we want to bring them back to life or that, that's where you would use the word revive. So when we're talking about revival in the context of the body of Christ or the church. We want to awaken or even bring back to life, bring back to life. Not that the church is completely dead, but often we do drift into a place of being lethargic about the things of God. We come to a place where our passion for God begins to decay, and we really do need revitalizing. Amen? We need to be awakened again. Uh, we need to be revitalized. We need to return to God's heart and what his purposes are in the earth, right? And sometimes we're so spiritually asleep, we need God to step in and wake us up. Wake us up. How many guys, when you were kids, uh, your mom, dad woke you up for school in the morning? They came in and said, wake up. Some of them were gentle. Wake up, little precious angel. Precious little sweetheart, the, the morning sun is here, right? Uh, some of them came in with banging pots and pans. Get up, you better get up. You're gonna, you're gonna miss the bus. More, I got more nods for, for, the, for the ladder. That's okay. Uh, we need to be awoken spiritually sometimes, right? We, uh, we are prone to wander, right? Like the, the old song says, we are prone to wander away from God, to forget about God, just everything in our, our, our flesh nature. Uh, we, will, we will decay, we will we'll slip away, and we need those times of revitalization. We need the Holy Spirit to awaken us again. And sometimes that's through the encouragement of a friend, right? Or, or, or that, that's being in, in a service like this one, and something awakens in us, but also there's this sovereign move of God uh, where he awakens a whole body back to his purposes, back to his heart again. And that's what we're looking at uh, and talking about tonight, man, being awakened again to God's purposes. We see this throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, I mean, the people of Israel would go through these seasons where they would have a wicked king, right? And they'd fall away from God and they'd start serving idols uh, and adopting all these evil practices. And then God would give them a prophet or a righteous king that would awaken the nation back towards the heart of God. They'd return to God again. They'd destroy their idols. They'd fast They'd repent and there'd be a spiritual awakening, right? And this would go on for a while and then they'd fall away from God and need awakening, revi revitalizing, reviving again. Even in the New Testament, when we see some of this, when we read the epistles, even though the times that the, these letters were written, the churches were not very old, 5, 10, 15 years old. We see language in, in the letters as being written to the churches to wake up. Wake up, return back to those first things, your first love for God, awaken, man, uh, really, really grow in the Lord, grow your faith, uh, and, and there's times we need to be awoken, right? And so we see that in church history, we see that uh, in the Bible. I want, I want us to spend some time thinking tonight about the way God uses these special times of revival to renew his people and get us back to his heart, get us back to his mission of seeing Christ glorified among the nations, right? That's God's heart. It's to see Jesus glorified among the nations and to see people come into relationship with him. 
And so if we're not passionate about that, we're not excited about that, we might need to be reawakened, right? We might need to be revived and brought back to the place where we're excited about the things God's excited about. Do you want to be excited about the things God's excited about, right? Do you want your heart to reflect his heart? I do too. I do too. So for those of you guys that attended our Tennessee Breakaway Retreat, I know that's many of you guys, uh, drove up to Goodlettsville, Tennessee, uh, and went to Tennessee Breakaway. I spoke Friday night about the purpose of God's Holy Spirit in empowering us, right? God's Holy Spirit empowers us uh, in a special way so that we can fulfill the heart of God to glorify Jesus, to make disciples, to live boldly for him. And so I talked about what it meant to be personally filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Many of you guys have asked God to fill you with the Holy Spirit in that way. If you've not, man, we'd love to pray with you tonight. This message is not so much about individual empowerment by the Holy Spirit, but a corporate empowerment of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like for God's Holy Spirit to move upon the entire body? I say corporate, that just means a gathering of people, right? What does that mean uh, for, for, for God to move and empower us that way with his Holy Spirit. Jesus promised again and again in the Gospels and again in Acts 1 that he would send his Holy Spirit to empower God's people in that way. When we see in the Bible believers first baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, it's during uh, this special time. It's during a harvest festival called Pentecost. So there's people from all over the world gathered there in Jerusalem because it's a, a festival. Right? A couple weeks ago, people from all over the world met in New Orleans for Mardi Gras. Right? So you've got this, this festival that brings in people from all over that don't normally live there. And this is where God pours out his spirit on the believers that are waiting there because Jesus told them, to wait here. Wait here until you've received the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and it's going to make you bold witnesses for me. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. They wait uh, and they pray. God pours out his spirit. There's a dramatic move of God, supernatural signs that accompany it. You can read about it. The, the, the crowds, again, from all over the world are like, what in the world is happening here? Uh, and then Peter stands up and he addresses the crowd. Hey, let me tell you uh, what you're witnessing here uh, is biblical. In fact, this is what God promised he was going to do in the prophet Joel. And of course, Jesus told us uh, to wait and to expect this, uh, this special pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so when we see the believers first filled with the Holy Spirit, yeah, they're gathered there in one place in Jerusalem. Uh, and then following that, other groups and individuals continue to be filled with the Spirit throughout the book of Acts in various locations and in various situations. But on the day of Pentecost, in that very first great outpouring, Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel. Right? He stands up and says, hey, we've got your attention, right? Supernatural stuff's happening, so you've got the attention of thousands of people. He stands up and says, hey, let me explain what's going on here. Right? Some of the initial, initial people there were saying, these guys are, are out of it. They're being weird. Maybe they're drunk. Maybe they're intoxicated. Peter stands up and says, no, they're, we're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. Right? It, it, that, that's not what it is at all. No, what you're witnessing here, and so some of the things they're witnessing, the supernatural signs on that day, we, we hear there's a mighty rushing wind. We hear that fire appeared above their heads. I don't know that the crowd witnessed that, but we also know that they spoke in tongues. They spoke in other languages to the point where each person from various places all over the world heard the gospel preached in their own tongue. And so he said, hey, this is something, the supernatural thing that you are witnessing, experiencing. God promised to do this hundreds of years ago through the prophet Joel. And so he stands up, he preaches the gospel. He tells them the good news about Jesus and all that God's done for them through Jesus. And then in that, he quotes uh, this prophecy in Joel chapter two uh, to contextualize that supernatural event to say, hey, man, this is biblical. God, in fact, promises that he's going to do this. So we're going to go look back at Joel's prophecy tonight to help us to better understand God's perspective 
on revival and how he uses these corporate outpourings of the Spirit to reinvigorate his church and empower his people to glorify Jesus among the nations. All right, let's go to the source. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to be in Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Something we're going to see in this text is that while God is sovereign, sovereign just means that God is in control and he's going to do what he wants, right? So if whenever you hear about someone says God is sovereign, that just means God's going to do whatever he wants and God's in control. Ultimately, God is in control of the whole universe that he made, right? Uh, and, and he's going to do what he pleases. I can't command God. You can't command God. I don't even presume to. God's going to do what he wants. So something we're going to see that God is sovereign uh, and he pours out his spirit when and where and how he chooses, right? He's going to do what he wants to do and where and when he wants to do it. But even so, his people have an active role to play in preparing the body of Christ for this kind of corporate outpouring. Again, corporate meaning not just on individuals, but on the whole body. God is sovereign. He's going to pour out his spirit when and how he chooses but we can prepare ourselves. That's what we're going to see in this text. There's something you can do to actively pursue that, actively prepare yourself for that, to prepare the church, to bring glory to Jesus, to bring a harvest of lost souls into the family of God when this revival season comes. And we're going to see here that this outpouring, this revival, is not something we just wait for passively, but it's something we actively pursue through the posture of our hearts. I'm going to say that again. Revival is not something we wait for passively, though it's something we actively pursue through the posture of our hearts. So you guys there in, in, in Joel chapter 2, the first 11 chapters here of Joel chapter 2 are full of lots of apocalyptic imagery about God's coming judgment. Right? Joel, Joel is foreseeing a future date of God's judgment where he comes and judges sin. So this is an already but not yet kind of prophecy. We do see judgment you know, later on in, in Israel's history, right? Of course, through uh, them being conquered by uh, Assyria and then, and then later Babylon and taken into exile. But then also looking forward to the future judgment uh, that, that's going to come where, where God one day punishes all sin and evil, brings judgment and saves his people. Um, so this is what the prophets refer to as the day of the Lord. As you're reading man, through, through, through the Old and New Testament and you're reading about the prophets and they're talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. And that's what he's talking about here. The day that God brings ultimate judgment against all sin and evil on earth and where he ultimately saves his people. Right. So we, we, we talked about Jesus. Man, G Jesus was the son of God. If you've not heard that, Jesus was God's son um, and he lived on the earth in an actual human body, fully God, fully human. He, he proclaimed the kingdom of God, how God wants you to live as a citizen in his kingdom, a way we can live that pleases God. He modeled for us what that life would look like. And then he was arrested and publicly executed. When he died on a cross, God worked a miracle uh, and took all the punishment that I deserve, that you deserve for everything you've ever done wrong and laid that consequence on Jesus instead. So instead of being on the side of God's wrath and judgment, we can receive mercy and grace and forgiveness from God. Is that good news? And we can be adopted into the family of God when we put our trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross to save us. When we say, God, I know I'm not good enough and I don't deserve it, but I put my faith, I put my trust completely on Jesus and what he did to save me. Well, in that moment, God forgives your sins. He adopts you into the family of God and you have a forever home in heaven with him when this life is over. I mean, that's the good news of the gospel. So Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. But he didn't stay dead, right? Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he was who he claimed to be, the living son of God, the Messiah, 
And then Jesus ascends to heaven after spending about 40 days appearing to hundreds of eyewitnesses. Jesus ascends to heaven saying, one day I'm coming back, right? One day I'm coming back. And Jesus is still coming back. And we're still waiting for his return. But there will come a day and we don't need to be ignorant of it, right? I'm spending so much time talking about judgment and and, and these kind of things because this is the context of Joel. And it's important to understand the, the Bible in context. There will come a day where God says, okay, that's enough. And turns the page of human history. So that's enough. Let y'all carry on for long enough. That's going to be it. And Jesus returns. Right? And when he returns, that's good news for his children. Right? What, what, a, what a joyous celebration that's going to be. Right? The, 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 you'll hear the term rapture. Rapture means to be full of joy because it's going to be joyful to see Jesus when Jesus returns. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it's not going to be such a joyful experience. Because God is going to come and bring ultimate judgment against all sin and evil. He's going to set all the wrong things right. But if I'm a wicked person and I'm far from God, that's not a good thing for me, right? So when I'm reading this apocalyptic judgment in imagery, not just in Joel, but throughout the Bible, and th- that should bring me to a place of, man, I need to get right with God. I need to repent. I need to stop being wicked and evil because God's going to judge that. I'm not just going to get away with it, right? There's going to be judgment against evil. I need to be reconciled with God. I need to repent. I need to put my trust in Jesus and be forgiven, right? So for context, these first 11 verses are talking about this day of the Lord. And the armies of God in this passage are portrayed as a massive wave of locusts that destroy everything in their path to bring God's judgment on the world. And so we're going to pick up in verse 11 where Joel says this. About that judgment, this is Joel chapter 2, verse 11. The day of the Lord is great and dreadful. Who can endure it? Your translation might say the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Terrible from the same root word, terrifying. Again, if I'm right with God and I see Jesus coming back, hooray, praise the Lord. If I'm not right with God and I see Jesus coming back and I see judgment brought against the world, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. It's dreadful. Knowing that we're going to be judged by the Lord should be a wake-up call that moves us to repentance. We want to repent and receive mercy for our sins so we can escape the judgment that's coming. And Joel prophesies in these next few passages and where we're going to study tonight, he prophesies what our response should be in recognition to God's justice. God, we know that you're a good God. And because you're a good God, you are opposed to all evil and sin and wickedness. And one day you're going to bring judgment against us. And that's good news, right? When we look at the evil and wickedness in the world, it grieves our heart to think that people are just going to get away with all that evil. We saw these terrible things. And no, God's going to deal with that. He's going to balance the scales. He's going to make sure justice is done. And so Joel prophesies what our response should be in recognition of God's justice. And it's this response Hear this, that also sets the conditions for an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. Those two are connected. So the way we respond to God's justice is also what sets the conditions for a corporate outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Those are connected, and that's what we're going to see in these next few verses. So this is what, this is what Joel says. We're going to pick up in verse 12. Uh, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. So there's going to be three of these kind of main points, main ideas uh, tied up in this passage. And the first one is simply return. Return to the Lord. 
God says, return to me. You may be far from me. You may have followed me once, but you're far from me. Return to me. Return back to me. Maybe you don't have a relationship with God. Man, you can fix that tonight, right? You can put your trust in Jesus. You can be made right with God in a second when you put your trust in him. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He loves you. He wants to forgive you. Um, and he wants to wipe all that away and give you a fresh start. But he says, return to me. And we do this through repentance. What does repentance mean? I mean, we've talked about it lots of times uh, in Kyle. Repentance literally means to change your mind or a change in direction. So if you are pursuing sin, repentance is turning away from that and pursuing God instead. It's not just stop doing a thing that you're not supposed to do, right? That's not repentance, right? Uh, repentance isn't, oh, I'm doing this bad thing. Well, I'm just going to stop. No, it's totally turning away from that thing and pursuing Jesus instead. So when God says, return to me, then it's a picture of repentance. Turn away from man, idolatry and sin, everything that's taking up so much of your time and energy, taking up so much of your life that you don't have room for God, that Jesus gets crowded out of your day to day. Repent from those things. Turn away from those things and return to God. It's going to look like being grieved by your sin. And we talk about grief a lot in our culture because there's a lot of hard stuff out there. But when's the last time you were grieved about your own sinfulness, grieved about your own distance from God? God, I want to be closer to you and I'm not. And it breaks my heart. And you allowed that grief, that godly sorrow the New Testament talks about to bring you to a place of repentance where you turn away from all those things separating you from God and you chase hard after Jesus. Repent and mourn for the way that your sin separates from you, you from God, from the way it damages your life and damages and hurts others, the way it breaks God's heart. Are you grieved by your own sin? He says, he says it in a unique way. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments, not your clothes. So in that day, it would be common when someone is grieving to publicly demonstrate that they're grieving by tearing their clothes or sometimes tearing their clothes and putting ashes on their head. You may see this in the Old Testament when different characters are going through a time of grief. They've lost a loved one. They're going through it. And we see Job go through it, right? And they tear their clothes and put ashes on their head. And, and this is a public, a public show. I'm like, guys, I'm, I'm going through a really tough time. I'm grieving. Uh, and, and it's, it's part, part of the whole process. What God is saying is you know, that, that's fine. But what, what happens is it can become a show for us where we tear our clothes, but we don't really, our heart's not broken. Our heart stays hard. So God says, way more important to me that your heart's broken than your clothes are broken. Right? Way more important to me that your heart is wrecked for the things of God than you wreck your outfit as some public display. Right? So I say all this ahead of any kind of altar response because you can come and you can say, oh, God, I'm, I'm turning back to you. I'm giving up all these things. If it's an outward show, you've missed it. God cares about the heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. Right? Let our hearts be grieved and broken by our sin grieved about our separation from God where it changes our life. It changes our actions, right? We start returning to God, returning to the things of God, returning to his heart. It isn't a show for other people, but a serious inward turning away from our sin and returning to the Lord. And Joel reminds us the Lord is gracious. The Lord's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. Man, these qualities are true of God, even in his judgment, even in his justice. God's full of love. That's his character. He's full of grace. He's full uh, of compassion and he's slow to anger. This is our God. Praise the Lord. He loves you and he wants to show you mercy. Right? He loves you and he wants to show you mercy. He then goes on to say this in verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. 
call a sacred assembly. Again, these are corporate things. These are things to do in community and a group, not just for an individual fast. So no, call a fast for everyone. Verse 16, gather the people, consecrate the assembly. Consecrate means to set apart, to make holy, right? There, there, there's purity and holiness in that imagery. Consecrate the assembly. That's the body. You know, that, consecrate the, the church, the Kalpha gathering, the, the group of believers. Bring together the elders, gather the children. This is everybody, young and old. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Go get them out of the nursery. Uh, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. This is young and old. This is young adults. This is young married couples. Uh, this is the, the old grandmas and grandpas. This is the kids in the kids' church. This is the babies in the nursery. Gather everybody. Gather everybody and consecrate the assembly. Gather everybody saying, together we're going to pursue God. Together, we're going to go after God. Together, we're going to fast these things that separate us from God and draw near to the Lord. So the second major component, the first one was return. The second one is pursue, pursue God together in community. We should all be pursuing God as individuals. Sometimes we just take that for granted, right? We should all be going after God individually, but we also need to pursue God in community together, right? Be praying with one another in community. Um, and studying the Bible together in community, worshiping together in community, fasting even in community. And what if, you're, what if you're a life group all fasted together on the same day as just a show of solidarity and unity and seeking God together? Pursue God together in community. And he says this begins with consecrating ourselves, you know, dedicating ourselves to the Lord, setting aside our life and saying, God, we belong to you. We're dedicating our life to you. Gathering people together, young and old, to seek after the Lord, turning away from idols and distractions to fully give yourself over to the Lord and pursue his holiness. When we think about fasting, uh, that, that's not a thing that gets us excited. We're excited about Jesus coming back, right? But we don't get excited about the idea of fasting. And so fasting, man, you may think of in terms of food, and it certainly is that. And we've got a biblical precedent for people uh, giving up eating for a period of time to draw closer to God. Say, hey, I'm not going to eat today. And those times I would be enjoying a meal or a snack, I'm going to pray and seek the Lord instead. Or I may, I may fast for several days. Or I may fast certain foods for a period of time. I like those foods, but I'm giving them up, uh, not as a diet. I'm not trying to lose weight. Right? I'm trying to seek after God. I'm trying to get closer to God. If you only stop eating or you only cut down your eating and you don't replace that with times of, of prayer and really seeking after the Lord, that, that's just a diet. That's not fasting. Right? Fasting is I'm going to give up this thing and then seek after God. It doesn't only have to be food. Right? For some of us, we'd have a lot more free time uh, to seek after the Lord if we gave up this. Right. Uh, if we drastically cut down man, our time on social media, our time on the phone, uh, our time on the TV, our time, whatever the distraction is for you, man, I know we're all unique uh, and different. But there's something in your life that's like if I spent less time with this, I'd have a whole lot more time with the Lord. And that's what fasting is a picture of. OK, well, I'm going to give up that thing because God's more important. Is there anything that's more important than, than drawing close to God? Right? Is there anything in my life that's not worth giving up to have more of Jesus Right. We, we sang about in the song, less and less of me, more and more of you, whatever you, whatever it takes, I'll do it. Right. That's fasting. OK, God, I want more of you. Well, he puts his finger on. Are you willing to give this up? Mm. Yeah. yeah? And, and, sit, and you'll set that thing aside maybe for a season. OK, I'll give it up for a week or I'll give it up for 30 days. Or maybe, maybe it's been straight up you know, sinful and an idol. And you need to give it up altogether. It's not really fasting. It's just kicking that thing out and getting, getting it out of your life. But maybe it's 
Maybe it's not even a sinful thing or a wicked thing. It could be a good thing. But if it's taking up too much of your life, too much of your heart, too much of your time to where there's not time for God, uh, then we need to drastically cut down on that thing. It's time to fast that thing to bring it back into proper balance, right? Where we're saying, God, I want you more than that. And I'm spending too much time on this. I want to fast it so I can have more of you in my life. So that's part of pursue is pursue God together in community. And, and that's going to involve uh, fasting. And that's going to involve giving up things to draw closer to God. That's what it's like to pursue. So return and pursue. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico, that's the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is your God? Let the priests, those who minister before the Lord, weep before the altar. Weep. So the third thing it says that we need to do is weep. Weep, return, pursue, and weep. Allow your heart to be broken for what breaks the heart of God. Weep and cry out in prayer for the lost and for those that are far from God. Uh, Weeping before the Lord, weeping before the altar is a picture of intercession. I'm crying out for God on behalf of others. Right? We already talked about we should be grieved by our own sin. Right, Our own sin should cause us to, to weep and, and to turn to God. But we should also weep for the things that break God's heart. And that's the lostness of the people around us. That's the injustice we see in the world. Right, And that's all the suffering we see in the world. When's the last time we weeped before God in intercession? Uh, and, and he says that's part of it, meaning that we should weep before the Lord, calling out to God on behalf of others. Notice that this command, this direction is directed toward priests. It says, priests, you who minister before the Lord, weep before the altar. Weep before the altar. As believers, as followers of Jesus, we need to take special notice of this. Because as followers of Christ, we now serve as royal priests, according to the New Testament. Right? We are a kingdom of priests, a, a royal priesthood, a nation set apart from God. Right? We, we don't have the, the sacrificial system of Joel's day where you had priests that would go before God and make sacrifices. And we stood at a distance. No, our role now is to draw close to God on behalf of other people, pleading with people to be reconciled to God, helping other people be made right with God and praying for them, interceding for them. Right? We, we all serve in that role of priests. So when you see a command towards priests... Uh, you know, we want to contextualize that and, and think about the context. But I think this is very much as for us today. Uh, and we, need, we need to be people that weep before the Lord because we're grieved about the things that break God's heart. Our prayer time should move our emotions, right? It shouldn't just be, you know, us running through our simple prayer list, right? But our emotions aren't engaged, right? And, and, and maybe it's praying, God, God, would you help my emotions be engaged? Would you help me to be brokenhearted about the things you're brokenhearted about? Will you help me to be moved with the things that you're moved about? We know that Jesus was moved uh, by compassion. We know that Jesus man, wept uh, and, and had times where he experienced man, the full range of emotions, right? Uh, and we want to make sure that our heart is in line with him. So the things that grieve God should grieve us as well. What grieves the heart of God? People being far away from him. First and foremost, that's the major one. And he is brokenhearted about all his children that are so far away from him and don't know him. Right? And so that should break our heart too. I think God's grieved by injustice. I mean, he sees human suffering. He sees humans taking advantage of other humans. He sees prejudice and racism and all the wickedness and evil in this world. And that breaks his heart. It should break our heart too, to the point that we weep and cry out and pray to the Lord about it, right? Not just complain about it, not just tweet about it. 
We call it to the Lord about it, the one who can do something, right? And we say, God, this is awful. And we cry out to God. So when was the last time that you were brokenhearted enough to weep, not just for your own sin, but for the lostness of the people around you? The lostness of a family member, a friend, a roommate, the brokenness and hopelessness of all those around you who've not yet come to experience the love of Jesus. Does it make you weep? Does it break your heart? So he says these things, man, we want to we return to God. We want to pursue God in community. We want to weep about the things that break God's heart. And he says, when you do this, what is God's response? When we respond to God this way, what is God's response to us? Joel tells us in verse 18, then the Lord will be jealous of his land and take pity on his people. God's moved by this. Right? When we position our hearts in this way, when we behave in this way together in community, God is moved to action by that. He takes pity. He moves. He takes compassion on the situation. It says he's jealous for us. He's drawn to us like never before. And then he goes on. We're not going to read every verse, but in the following verses, the Lord promises to act in response to their repentance, in response to their returning, in the response to their pursuing, in response to their weeping, God promises to act. You can read about it later, uh, later this week. But in verse 19, he says he's going to satisfy his people. He's going to meet their needs. Whatever they need, he's going to satisfy that. In verse 20, he says he's going to drive out foreign armies and invaders and those things that are antagonizing them and oppressing them. Uh, in the verses that follow, he says he's going to send rain and send food. He's going to meet their needs. He's going to act. Verse 23 says this. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he's given you autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains. Right? So rains, obviously water is important. Uh, I would be fine with less of it like tonight. Um, water is important. Rain is important. But there's, there's, there's more than just the simple surface meaning here. Not just the water they need it for, for crops, even though that's very Important, but there's a spiritual context here. God's going to give you, satisfy you spiritually, right? With an autumn rain and a spring rain. It's going to satisfy you now and then also in the future, right? In this passage of promised restoration, the Lord talks about an autumn and a spring rain. Some of your translations might say an early and a latter rain, right? An early rain that's going to happen now in the present, right here, and a latter rain in your future. God doesn't just give you one time and say, okay, you're good. I'll see you in heaven. Peace out, right? right. God continually shows up and meets us at our point of need. And that's what he's talking about here. Verse 27 says, then you will know that I am in Israel. I am the Lord, your God, and there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed, right? And so that the idea of an early and a latter rain, it's a promise of a restoration and an outpouring of God's spirit in the present, right? To the people that that prophecy was originally written to, but also in the future, man, I, I believe for us. Right in the future, man, for those that would live, you know, thousands of years after Joel, he says, you're going to know that I'm your God. You're going to know that I'm present. I'm going to be dwelling among you uh, and you're not going to be ashamed. So the Lord follows up his promise to act, his promise to deliver and restore Israel by saying he's also going to give them his own divine presence. And I mentioned this briefly uh, at breakaway, right? What's the very best thing a parent can give to their child, Right. I know we sometimes hope our parents are going to give us, hope our parents give us a car or money, you know, food. All those things are, are, are important, right? Especially the food, somewhere to sleep. Uh, but I mean, you could have a parent that gives you all those things, but doesn't give you any of their own time or any of their own 
presence. And ultimately, the best thing a parent can give their child is themselves. To make time for them. To be present in their life. Right? Uh, to be there for them. And God's no different. God's a good father who knows how to take good care of his children. He says, the most important thing I can give you, son, daughter, is myself. I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to be near to you. And um, that's what God's talking about here. I'm going to dwell among you. Yes, I'm going to meet your needs. Yes, I'm going to satisfy these things. Yes, I'm going to bring deliverance and restoration and revival. I'm going to do that by giving you myself. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to dwell among you. How will he dwell among them? Well, now we're going to get to the part of the prophecy that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost. Uh, it's, it's this here, starting in verse 28. Joel 2, 28. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in the last days. In those days, I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful terrible day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He'll dwell among us by giving us his spirit, by pouring out his spirit and living in us and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God, God says, I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to meet you at that place of repentance. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. So when Peter sees people filled with the spirit and supernatural signs happening, he says, yeah, this is what Joel promised. God promised he was going to do this for us through the prophet Joel. And of course, Jesus, Jesus told us as well. And, and so, so Peter draws attention to that. Um, and, and, uh, and, and that's exactly what we see there in Acts chapter 2. Uh, pouring out of the Holy Spirit to empower the believers. And Joel says here that this is a very specific goal God has in mind. Yes, I'm going to pour out my spirit with a very specific goal in mind. There in verse 32. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what's God's goal in pouring out his spirit on the body? People getting saved, right? Who? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, right? Whoever, right? Whoever, whoever wants to call on the name of the Lord. God is compassionate and gracious. He's open to everyone. Uh, he's saying the reason I'm going to pour out my spirit and the reasons there's going to be these miraculous signs and wonders. We read about prophecies and dreams and visions. It's not just so you can get goosebumps and have a fun time and, and do a spiritual roller coaster. It's so people can get saved. It's so people that are far from God can come into relationship with God, come into the family of God. They can come to know the Lord. That, that's how the prophecy ends, right? So that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 10, right? When he says, I mean, how a person becomes a Christian, how a person becomes a follower of Christ. Um, and they, they need to believe on the Lord and to believe on Jesus, that Jesus is the son of God, uh, that he died on the cross, that God raised him from the dead. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord in this way, and he quotes this Joel chapter two, will be saved, right? So we want to believe on Jesus and it's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit it allows us to proclaim the gospel, to live bold lives for Jesus. So the people around us are like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus too. How do I do that? And they can call on the name of the Lord and they can also be saved and they can also be brought into God's family. And that's what's near to God's heart. Right? So the whole purpose of revival is getting us to a place where we've got God's heart. Right? The, the, the things of God are awakened us. God's heart is for the lost. I mean, he cares about the people that are far away from him. Right? Peter writes in his letter that it's God's heart, God's will, that none should perish, but all would come to repentance. That's, that's what God's heartbeat is. He doesn't want anyone to perish without knowing him. He wants all people to come to repentance. That's God's heart. 
So when we are in revival, when we're revitalized, when there's an outpouring of God's spirit and we're awakened to the things of God, our hearts should draw a straight line to that, that all people would call on the name of the Lord to be saved. That everyone would have a chance to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. That I'm not okay with there being people that are far from God who haven't heard the gospel yet, especially if they're in my sphere of influence, they're gonna hear about Jesus, right? That's what it looks like to be revived and full of the Holy Spirit in this way is, and I wanna make sure everyone knows about Jesus. I want to make sure everybody knows the good news of what God's done for them through Christ. I want to make sure they know my testimony, what God did specifically for me. And that's what it looks like to be revived in this way. He'll dwell among us by giving us his spirit. The book of Joel continues, and you can read it later on this week, with God promising in chapter 3 to restore Judah. And he reminds us again that he's going to bring judgment on the nations. And sometimes we wonder when we see evil and pain and suffering in the world, God, are you going to do something about this? Right? This is not okay. And God does. He promises he will. He says there's going to be a day where I come and I bring justice and I bring judgment. And this prophecy, this promise from Joel that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost is an already but not yet kind of promise. What I mean by that is that the promise was partially fulfilled there on the day of Pentecost when the spirits poured out in the upper room, right? The, the spirit was poured out there on all those believers that were gathered. Uh, and then we see it continue to be fulfilled as believers man, are poured, uh, filled with the spirit and throughout the rest of the New Testament and throughout the rest of church history. But there's also going to be a day where it's fully fulfilled before that day of the Lord, before the second coming of Jesus. Um, this, I believe, is what Joel is referring to when he talks about an early and a latter spiritual reign, right? There's the early Rain, R-A-I-N, right? A pouring of God's spirit that we see on the day of Pentecost. And we see that rain kind of continue throughout church history. But then there's going to be a great latter rain, right? Before the second coming of Jesus, a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit like we've never seen before in human history. Because God's heart is for the lost. He wants to turn his people back towards him to get that same heart for those that are far from God. A special fulfillment to launch uh, the, the early church was needed there in that early reign in the first century. Uh, and in the future, uh, there's going to be a fuller fulfillment of all God wants to do with that. Are you guys tracking with me? So there's going to be a great corporate outpouring of the Holy Spirit preceding the second coming of Jesus. And while the Father alone gets to dictate when that is and what that looks like, the text we read here in Joel tonight says we've got a role to play in preparing ourselves for these great corporate uh, times of anointing and spiritual empowerment, right? And so whether this means Jesus is coming back real soon, like next week or later on tonight, I don't know. Or maybe he's still got, man, another couple hundred years of stuff he wants to do. Um, we do know from the gospel of Matthew that we're told this gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. And so I, I look at the long list of people who have not yet heard the gospel, yeah. right? And I say, hey, there's a lot of work left for us to do thousands of unreached people groups who've never heard about Jesus, right? And so Jesus said, they're all going to hear, and then the end's going to come. And again, I don't know when God decides, okay, you know, every, every person of this ethnicity has had an opportunity. I, I want to come. It, it could be very soon, and we should live in expectation, man. Jesus could come back at any time. Again, yeah, it could be later tonight. It could be tomorrow. It could be 10,000 years from now. He gets to decide that. But, but in the meantime, man, we need this uh, revitalization from the spirit, these corporate outpourings of the spirit to help us live bold lives for him and help us to get his heart, right? His heart for the people around us, his heart for how he wants us to live in a way that glorifies Jesus. We have a role to play. 
So there's going to be a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit preceding the second coming of Jesus. And we have a role to play in preparing ourselves for that corporate anointing and empowerment. Much the same way we can hasten the return of Jesus by proclaiming the gospel to all people so all people can hear, so the end can come, so we can all go home, right? We can also prepare ourselves for this final outpouring and for corporate revivals leading up to it by humbling ourselves and following Joel's call to corporate repentance. I've got a quote uh, that I'm going to read you guys from missionary superhero Dick Brogdon, uh, and then we'll wrap up tonight. Dick says this, we all long for another great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus comes back, there's going to be one more great shower of blessing, one massive harvest of souls. Joel, however, reminds us that this outpoured spirit is preceded by several critical factors. First, God's judgment. God's wholeheartedly people returning to him. So God's people wholeheartedly returning to him. Uh, men and women who rend their hearts and not their garments, communal fasts and sacred assemblies, and spiritual leaders who intercede. We long for one last outpouring of the Holy Spirit that results in spiritual harvest, but this is not something we wait for passively. It must be pursued. It must be pursued, right? And so we see revivals across the country and say, man, I want to see that in Memphis. Well, guys, Joel gave you a very specific prescription for how you see that. God's sovereign. He's going to decide what he wants to do, how he wants to do it, and Memphis is going to look like, it's going to look different, right? But we can still prepare ourselves for that corporate outpouring uh, by, by following in God, God's commands here in Joel chapter 2, to return to God. If we know we're not where we need to be, we need to return to God, that we would return to him in repentance, right? That we would pursue him corporately. Individually, yes, but corporately, together. We'd fast together. We'd worship together. We'd gather together more and more. Right? And then also uh, that we would weep before the Lord. We'd be brokenhearted for the things that break God's heart. We'd intercede for the lostness of the people around us, for the injustice in our world. That's how we pursue it. Right? That's how we pursue it. It's one thing to see you know, on your Instagram, man, that looks really cool. God, I wish you'd do that here in Memphis. You can pursue that. You can pursue that. Returning to the Lord in repentance, pursuing God by consecrating our community with fasting, and a devotion to holiness and weeping for the things that break God's heart, especially the lostness of those around us. So we want to see revival in our own lives. We want to see revival on our campus, amen, here at the University of Memphis. We want to see it in our churches, our church families, our church communities. And God alone chooses how and when he will pour out his spirit in this way. But it does seem like he's doing something special in this season, right? I'm old. I made peace with that, right? I'm 40 years old. I've seen different things happen in, in my time. This is special. Something special is happening. I don't fully understand it, and I don't have to, but God's doing something, right? And I want to be a part of it. I want our campus to be a part of it. I want Chi Alpha to be a part of it. Uh, I, want, I want to see him move in that way here at the University of Memphis, here in our city. And we can welcome that kind of outpouring here by positioning ourselves in this way. It's not something you just wait for passively or just dream about in the breakout group. God, I hope you do that here. And we position our hearts to receive it. And so we're going to respond in prayer. Um, and we're going to use this psych auditorium altar space here uh, to pursue God in this way. Kimber's going to put on some uh, instrumental music for one of the musicians to not feel like they had to play, that they could also seek God. Uh, and we're going to do what we read about. We're going to do the Bible, right? We're going to seek God together. 
Some of you guys, man, it, it is going to look like repentance. Man, you know immediately, yeah, I need to return to God. I'm not where I need to be. God, please have mercy on me. Please forgive me. Please help me to turn away from this sin, this behavior to pursue you. Right? For some of us, it's going to look like Holy Spirit gently putting his finger on something. Maybe not so gentle. Some of you guys' parents were loud. Some were quiet and gentle, right? Uh, and some of us need to be dealt with more severely than others. And so you know how God deals with you. But some of you, it may look like Holy Spirit putting his finger on something and saying, Son, daughter, I love you. And this has got to go. Right? Or you need to fast this for a season because it's becoming become an idol for you. It's taking up too much of your life. Uh, and you're going to seek God and pursue God by fasting that thing. Or you may fast in community. You may get with a friend, get with a brother, get with a sister, get with your life group and say, hey, guys, uh, man, what, what can we fast together in community? And I think it's also going to look like man, in this response time, uh, allowing our hearts to be broken. If we say, man, it's been a while since I've been brokenhearted by the things that break God's heart. It's been a while since I weeped before the Lord. Again, not a performative emotionalism. Hear me, I don't want that. I'm not interested in that. But I want our hearts to connect with God's heart, right? And, and to be grieved and broken by the things that, that break his heart. Amen. Could you guys stand with me? And we're going to you know, take some time and seek the Lord uh, in worship and in prayer these next few moments.